So we're continuing in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, We last left Paul and Silas in Philippi, where they were imprisoned. And after being imprisoned and released, they visited Lydia and the brethren, and they departed. And that brings us to the text today from the beginning of Acts chapter 17. Now, we're not going to look at every detail here. A lot of it repeats the same pattern of belief mingled with persecution that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. The word is a savor of life to some, Paul says, and a fragrance of death to others. But what I want to do here this morning is to highlight just two central features of this passage in Acts 17. That being so, we'll make two points then. Paul and the Scripture and the Bereans and Scripture. They're both on your outline. Paul and Scripture, the Bereans and Scripture. So first, Paul. Uh, they travel, this, this is about 100 miles. They come to Thessalonica, right, which is the capital of the province of Macedonia. Right? And here in Thessalonica, unlike Philippi, there is a synagogue of the Jews. Now, the Jews have stoned Paul. They've beaten him, they've imprisoned him, and they've largely rejected his gospel. And yet, city after city, he's deeply concerned for their salvation. Even after he said back at Antioch, we're going to the Gentiles, he starts again in this new city with the synagogue. And as was his custom, we're told, on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the scriptures. So, I just want to look at four things he does here. Four things. So, first notice this. This is not a one and done encounter. It involves extended conversations. On three, and the language here um, indicates these are three consecutive Sabbath days. So extended conversations for three consecutive Sabbath days. So he doesn't just drop off a tract at the synagogue, right? He doesn't leave the synagogue right after the service either. It's like a sustained investment of time in these people without any guaranteed payoff. In fact, with a long history of the vast majority of them rejecting the message. But nevertheless, he makes this extended investment. So that's the first thing he does. And without that, not not much else is possible in this type of ministry. And secondly, notice what he did. It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, it's important to remember that at this point, scripture means the Old Testament. In particular, it means the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Later, of course... Under the Spirit's inspiration, the canon would be expanded to include the New Testament, which you call the New Testament books, right? But the scripture in view here is solely the Old Testament. Now, scripture, as the word of God, is the supreme norm, right? It's the supreme norm. The the fathers of the church used to call it the norming norm, the norm which norms the other norms, Right? There are other norms, like parents are norms, and authorities are norms, and teachers are norms, elders are norms. There's, there's different norms. 
Scripture is not the only norm, but it's the supreme norm which norms the other norms. It's the final, it's not the, it's the final infallible authority. It's not the only authority, it's the only final infallible authority. And so the text shows us this Protestant principle to us, both with Paul's use of Scripture and later with the Bereans' engagement of Scripture. Everyone involved here, they're all Jews at this point, Paul and his synagogue audience, they all accept that Scripture alone is the voice of God above all other authorities. And so it's always for the apostles, always, and for the early church, and for the reformers, as it is to be for us, what saith the Scripture? To the Scriptures, to the Scriptures, to the Scriptures. You have an inestimable gift that much of the history of the church didn't have, like with the seven Bibles you've got laying around your house. Of the Scriptures, the Westminster Confession says this, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined... All decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. So our text is, among other things, a bold advertisement for the unrivaled supremacy of Scripture, which is you know, the root principle of Protestant Christianity. In its light, in the light of the holy text of God, all decrees, all human opinions, all private spirits, all opinions of pastors, all doctrines of men are to be examined. And to it, to it, all are to submit and to bow, their bodies and their souls. Now, that should be, I hope, here, well accepted and and common. And not new. Notice Paul, we're told, reasoned from the scripture. Now, I love this phrase because it affirms, right, this beautiful compatibility between scripture and reason. It doesn't find any tension. The towering authority of God's word, which brooks no rivals, and before which we bow our intellects, does not crush or suppress reason. It does not turn us into unthinking Bible robots. Doctrine is never indoctrination. It's never propaganda. Perhaps it's paradoxical or it's counterintuitive, but the word of God engages reason. It liberates reason. It heals reason. It unleashes reason. This is something that I don't think the world perceives properly. They think it must cramp reason or hinder it or crush it or suppress it or marginalize it. Faith is a way of reasoning. It's a mode of reasoning. It expands the domain of reason. Faith is never uncritical acceptance. It is the enemy of coercion. It is the enemy of superstition. Scripture remains supreme, of course, but notice, right, because Paul reasons from, the text says, from the Scriptures. Not alongside them, that's true. Not in parallel, as if reason were equal to Scripture. And certainly not above them, as if reason were superior to Scripture. But he reasons, 
and he reasons rigorously, right, from Scripture. Scriptures are the beginning or the fount of true human reasoning, not the end of human reason. Right? They're the restoration of reason. So reason, then, on matters of faith and piety, matters which are in view in the text, reason starts with and moves from Scripture. And this idea is shot through the whole book of Acts. Paul reasons here in Thessalonica, and in chapter 17 in Athens, he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews, and we're told he reasons in the public marketplace with the philosophers. In chapter 18, in Corinth, he reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath. In chapter 19, in Ephesus, he reasons and persuades them about the kingdom of God. In chapter 24, he reasons before a governor, a Roman official named Felix, about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Reasoning, then, right about matters of faith under and in the light of Scripture is what we do. Christianity loves reason. Right? Loves deep rationality. Restored reason. Rightly ordered reason. Robust reason. Christianity is, in the words of the great sociologist Rodney Stark, the victory of reason. It is a thinking person's and a speaking person's religion. How could it be otherwise? It's about the logos. Right? Which is the reason or the rationality, or the word, or the language, or the speech of God the Father made flesh. So deep rationality, a deep commitment to the intelligibility of the word and the world, that is at the heart of what it means to be Christian. Right? Reasoned public discourse is at the heart of the faith. So Paul's done two things here. He's in, he started a sustained conversation, because that's what humans do if they're made in the image of the Logos. And secondly, he's reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And the third thing he does, the text says, entails explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So, to explain here means he opened up the text. He expounded it in an atmosphere of give and take. Right? There's, this is an atmosphere where there are perhaps opponents in the audience and the like. He unpacked it, would be a way of paraphrasing this. Because the word is dense, and it needs to be unpacked and unfolded. The psalmist says, the unfolding of your words gives light. Isn't that a marvelous phrase? It's almost like the words in the Bible come folded together. And you need some kind of skill to unfold them properly. The unfolding of your words gives light. So here, Paul is just seeking by the Spirit to do what Jesus did with the disciples after the resurrection in Luke 24 from our gospel text opening their minds to understand the scriptures. So he's explaining, the text says, unpacking, expounding. 
and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And this, this word for prove here means to set beside. And probably the meaning is that Paul would set out, he would sit there and he would set out all the Old Testament predictions and prophecies of the Messiah's coming. right? And then he would set beside those and speak of their fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Right? That's an arduous task. That's a demanding task. But it was necessary. All of it was a divine necessity. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer, the text tells us. Jesus taught the same thing many times. The Son of Man must suffer many things from the elders and the scribes and the chief priests and be killed. And to the disciples, again, from our gospel lesson, from the same passage anyway in Luke 24, Jesus says this, listen, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? And then we heard it in the gospel lesson. What did Jesus do? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, scripture is the supreme authority. And scripture speaks from beginning to end of Christ. Right? He's the theme. He's the center of scripture and he's the goal of scripture. Particularly, it speaks of Christ as the promised one, the Messiah, who has to suffer and be raised in glory. So you can imagine Paul across three weeks doing this. Surely he used, had to have used huge tracts, swaths of the Old Testament to show this. If you just look at the book of Acts, already in the book of Acts, a number of prophets have been used. Joel's been used, Habakkuk has been used, others have been used. Already in the book of Acts, we've seen a raft of key psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Psalm 118. Every Christian should know those psalms and how they point to the Messiah. But surely Paul used Genesis 3 and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53. All of these would be fitting for the purpose. They all speak of the passion. And the exaltation of the Christ, as Peter puts it in his first epistle, the sufferings and the glories to follow. So Paul, like Jesus, begins with Moses and all the prophets and interprets them, the text says, the gospel text says, unpacks them in all the scriptures as the things concerning, explaining, proving that Jesus is the Christ. That's the third thing he did. Fourth and finally here is, and this is a summary of all he's doing. It's not really distinct, but in all of this scriptural reasoning and explaining and proving, he's preaching. Right? There's, it's, it's really hard to police the border between preaching and explaining and reasoning and proving. There's no neat little box where that teaching stays in this box and preaching's in this box. He's reasoning, he's explaining, he's proving, and he's preaching. He says this at the end of verse 3. This Jesus whom I proclaim, that is, I preach to you, is the Christ. Paul would later put it this way to the Colossians. Him we proclaim. That's it. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. We have no other commission. 
and ourselves as servants, your servants for Christ's sake. Him we proclaim, he tells the Colossians, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. It's for this that he labors. So the message is simple at its core, right? This Jesus, who I preach to you, is the Christ. But, you know, to sustain that simple message, to defend it, to make it credible in the eyes of the synagogue, requires showing that it was necessary for him to suffer. That was the big scandal, right, to the Jews, that he would suffer. It was necessary that he suffer and be raised, which many of them didn't, also didn't believe in. And that requires robust reasoning, explaining, proving under the authority of Old Testament Scripture. So that's Paul's engagement with the Scriptures and with the synagogue. Secondly, then, the Bereans. The Bereans. Paul persuades some, some of his hearers, but not all. And then you get this familiar scene. We've seen it three or four other times already. There's a mob. There's an attack. There's an appearance before the city authorities. That's what he gets for his three weeks of labors. A mob, an attack, and an arrest. Paul and Silas are sent away by night, fleeing to Berea, 50 miles away. And what do they do when they arrive? They go to a Jewish synagogue. (laughs) Calvin says at this point that Paul is an indefatigable an untiring soldier of the cross. Jews arrest him, Jews stone him, Jews hunt him down. He flees to the next city and he goes to the next synagogue there. And in verse 11 now, now back to Acts 17, verse 11 tells us these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. This is a beautiful word, right? Nobility. It speaks of high character. Excellence. These are honorable people, generous people, magnanimous. It's an enormous compliment. And this nobility of these Jews in Thessalonica, I mean in Berea, it consists of two things. Like to get at what does it mean that they were noble. First it says this. They received... Note that word. They received the word with all eagerness. And secondly, we're told that they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So I want to unpack this. They received the word with all eagerness. Now, of course, it's true, right? Receiving the word is the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit generally creates certain forms of laudable human qualities to enable this. Right? So Paul doesn't over-spiritualize it. Right? He, does, he doesn't say they weren't noble, it was all the Holy Spirit. He commends their nobility. Yes, of course, it's all the work of God's grace, but nonetheless, they had acquired a kind of temperament that could be described as nobility, an open-mindedness, right? It's receptivity. Spirit wrought to be sure but an open-minded receptivity. That marks them off from the other Jews. An open-minded receptivity. A kind of holy passivity before the word, if you will. Right? We are begotten by the word. 
The word is implanted in our souls. Right? And so we, we always have a posture of being underneath it in a receptive manner. And this is a major part of nobility. And it's a major part of their nobility. Remember, it's not like these Jews and the Bereans are being asked to tweak a few minor ideas. Right? When we're asked to tweak a few minor ideas, we can get testy about that. They're being asked to restructure their conception of the Messiah and to embrace Jesus as the, as the Christ at great cost. Communal, social cost, familial cost. And this word, so hated by many of their fellow Jews, this word they sympathetically received. They were in a posture of receptivity. And that means they were deeply noble. Right? We are not, generally speaking, capable, really, of laying our long-held systems and our deep convictions aside easily, or at least of subjecting them to critique. It's very difficult for us. Very difficult for us to seriously consider other options. It's too unnerving. But it's a lack of nobility as well. And when we don't do this, we end up just fortifying our own little camp and caricaturing the other camps. That's a lack of nobility. It's an exquisitely rare thing to put one's own views on the table, get them all out there, and then walk around the table and criticize them. Go after them. You know where the bodies are buried, right? I hope you do. Everybody should know where the bodies are buried in their own theology. (laughs) You walk around, you critique. If we don't do this right, we end up locked in ourselves. We don't have this kind of open-minded receptivity, this nobility. So we never read from another Christian tradition. Or much less engage literature from outside the Christian tradition. Right? And then our faith is parochial. Like it's cramped, it's narrow, it's fearful, it's brittle, it's sloganizing, it's overconfident. I mean, just think of the position these Bereans are in. And they take the posture of, all right, here's the posture. All right, maybe I've been wrong for my whole life about the most important questions about God and his Messiah. That can be unnerving. I get it. I've had some days like that. (laughs) I'm sure some of you have too. But it's a wonderful, liberating thing. Maybe I have been wrong about a bunch of big things. So what? I want to be right eventually, so this is good. It's okay. It's okay to think maybe I've been wrong on some big questions. That's what they're thinking here. So the question we ask ourselves is, are we seeking the truth at all costs? Right? And before we too quickly say, yes, we are, We ought to consider if we're just merely dug in and defending our position, which is different than seeking the truth. These noble ones are seeking the truth, whatever considerable disruptions it would bring to their lives and their relationships. So, like one of the keys to this kind of receptivity um, 
And we do this, of course, without throwing everything up in the air. We're not, we're not changing every belief every hour or every day or every year. That's not, what's, that's not what we're talking about here. But we are talking about the ability to examine stuff in such a way that we sift it. Hopefully we make it better, but if we have to correct it, we correct it. Maybe we end up with more ambiguity at the end than, than less. Who knows? But one of the keys, and here I'm saying nothing new, one of the keys to being, having this nobility Right, to being a good reader of texts, any text, the Bible or anything else. Anyone who reads knows this, right? Anyone who teaches English knows this. Is the ability to suspend judgment and to sympathetically enter into the world of the author and to try it on for size for a little while. It's astonishing how many Christians cannot do this. To listen to learn to get inside the skin of another person before the critique comes out. I often tell young people who are, who are telling me something about Roman Catholic theology, I'd say, look, 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 take five years and read. You're like 200 books away from critiquing. And five years. Because the critiques come and they're all mangled and they're ugh, malproportioned. It's like, look, there's a lot to critique there. But you're going to have to do some sympathetic reading. And by the way, this is a liberating, it's even an exhilarating thing. And you know why? Because in the end, it's not about being right. It's about living in the truth with all of its splendor and complexity. So if I toss a few views away tonight because I think they're wrong and I need new ones, that's a glorious thing. I'm not going to live in the fear of not doing that. This is much better than winning the argument. Being hunkered down. The Thessalonians are noble because they did this with Paul's preaching and exposition. They didn't preemptively conclude that Paul must be wrong. That's really something. There's a deep freedom in that. They were receptive to the word. Notice the text says, with all eagerness. And that word means, this eagerness means Something like rushing forward. They were devouring the text. They were pouring over the text, right? They were absorbing the text. They were marinating in the text. They were spending time in the text. They were treating the text like it's more important than any other earthly concern. This is a huge part of their nobility, and it's what living faith does. It receives the word with a voracious eagerness. So the Bereans submitted to the gospel. They had faith. But listen, here's a key point, a key qualifier. They were not gullible. That's the beautiful thing here. Right? This is not some sort of blind reception. Hey, let's try a new idea on. Right? Like flitting around with no roots. It's not, it's not like a leap in the dark. Right? They were, and this is the second pillar of their nobility. The text says they were examining the scriptures daily. Daily to see if these things were so. By the way, notice, notice, there, nobody has Bibles in their homes. <laughs> These Bibles are, are in the synagogue, probably, or in some public place, the, the scrolls. So this is done in community. It really can't be done that well, holed up at home, cut off from the tradition, right? It's a collective activity. They did it together. They were examining the scriptures in community every day to see if these things were so. 
And of course, when you do this, right, you don't always change your mind. You think, you know, I think I, I, think I had this pretty right. But you find that your positions are refined. Right? You find that you overlook certain things or maybe you didn't see things whole. We need each other. We need the whole community and the whole history of the tradition to see things whole, to see things complete. So the Bereans then are doing this. Uh, there's a kind of feedback loop, we might say, that operates in the saints if things are working well. It, it, it works like this. You, the, theologians uh, and uh, literary types call this the hermeneutical spiral. That's the big fancy word for it, but I'll, exp- I'll explain it. And you've, you probably all do it, right? Because we're rational creatures. But it's, it starts with receptivity, right? Somebody presents something to you. If you're noble, right, I mean, not in all cases, but most time, if you're noble, you start with a receptivity to the idea. And then you seek to test or confirm the idea by going back to Scripture. And that leads to refining and correcting and reshaping and and strengthening the original set of convictions. And then you take your new set of beliefs and go back again to the Scriptures to test those for correction and refinement. And this process, this circle, this spiral never ends in a mature believer. It never ends. Ever. Ever. All of our systems are open, textured systems because we see through a glass darkly. We never arrive. Look, I, I did my work on what people might call systematic theology. I would consider myself that. But I'm aware of the danger of locking a system down and closing it. All of our systems are opened out, not only to God, but to the community. They're, all of our systems are open, textured in this age. So it's a beautiful thing. We, we, we go back to scriptures, we, we refine our original starting point, and we keep doing this. And we're involved in this circle, refining and refining and refining. Deep conviction, then, and deeply examining those convictions go hand in hand. Right? That's the key. Deep convictions and deeply subjecting those convictions to critique go hand in hand. Right? Deep conviction without... Deep examining is ideology. That's not what we're about, right? True religion, then, welcomes. It welcomes examination. Sympathies have to be sifted, and and convictions have to be critiqued. Now, in all of this, I want to make it clear. We don't operate from fear, right? Like We know that we're sinful, that we see through a glass darkly, that our perspectives are limited. And thus, we're to be quick to say, yeah, I got that wrong. Maybe for 10 years, I got that wrong. I remember when I was working on my dissertation, I was certain at the beginning, basically the outline of the dissertation I was going to write. But two and a half to three years into the research, the whole structure of it changed. Anyone who's done this knows this experience, right? The whole structure of the dissertation was different. Why? It's the same. It's just sitting with the data for three years, and you realize, oh, like now I see it better. I see it more whole. I see new things. I see deep structures that I didn't see before. I see, But it took three years, right? And you're in the middle of the process. You're like, oh, I have to write a different dissertation, right? And that's, that's what happens, right? Um, we know that we're limited. And, and that's, that's the beauty of the first point I made. He took three weeks. 
he had, a, had a, you know, almost a month-long conversation. Three Sabbath days, probably a couple days on either side, and you've got almost a month. Um, so, but we have to be quick to say, yeah, I got, I got that wrong. I had, to re, I had to rewrite the whole chapter. You know? So, now, notice this examining. They were examining the scriptures, right? It's a legal word. It's actually used of judicial investigations. The apostles in chapter 4 were examined by the authorities. It speaks of testing and cross-examining claims. And the word implies something done with the utmost integrity, with great care, with the absence of bias, with unprejudiced openness. It's the opposite of just like proof texting, combing the Bible. They're, They're examining, right? Searching judicially in the light of the whole of Scripture and in the community of the faithful. And notice again, the nobility here was exercised daily. They were diligent. They weren't fickle. They were industrious engagers of the text. They meditated on it. So, there's an example for us here, obviously, but we're called to give this attention to Scripture. Not because we seek to be saved by our diligence. Again, I want to be clear on this, right? We're not saved because we're fantastic readers of Scripture, right? Or by our scholarship. Neither we nor the Bereans could be saved that way. But we seek to reason from and examine in the light of Scripture because it's exhilarating. Because the truth is its own reward, right? It's the glorious word of God. And the glory of the Scripture derives from the one whom it proclaims, namely the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, crucified and now raised, Right? That one, and not our facility with Scripture, is our salvation. So this is not like some little game we're playing while well, we should examine Scripture and be more open-minded, be more receptive. It's, it's we want more of Jesus. Right? We want to be in touch with Christ. The Word made flesh saves us, not our mastery of the written Word. I want to be very clear about that. Right? Nevertheless, we desire this nobility in this text... Because our relationship with Scripture is an index, right? It's a barometer of our relationship with Christ. I'm sure there are exceptions, but there are very few people who have a better relationship with Jesus than they do with the Bible. With, in most cases, there's a, there's a correlation there. You know, Jerome, the great 4th century biblical scholar, Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate. Jerome said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. He got this point. Scripture is the primary means of grace. There's nothing new here. Someone told me years ago, it always comes down to read your Bible and pray every day, doesn't it? And I said, yes, it does. Yeah, that's about 98% of it. Scripture is the primary means of grace. It's the chief way. No, it's not the only way. You can be in contact with Jesus walking out in the summer breeze. I get it. There's lots of ways to encounter God. But Scripture is the chief way that we stay in contact with and we grow in union with Jesus Christ, with the redemptive mercies and love of God. If we want Jesus intimately, fully, and robustly, then we want an intimate, full, and robust relationship with the Word that makes Him known. 
We engage scripture vigorously because we seek conformity to the image of Christ. We seek to bear the fruit of the Spirit. You know what a good summary, it struck me preparing this sermon, what a good summary of the fruits of the Spirit would be? In one word, nobility. Nobility is a word which speaks of a generalized excellence of character. So let us then desire by the free grace of God to grow in the verbs in this text. The verbs, here they are, reasoning, explaining, proving, receiving, examining. This is the circle of true faith. This is the wonderful, open, adventurous circle of reasoning from the scriptures. The outcome is not predetermined in advance when you live like this. Which we do, again, not as an end in itself, but because we desire to walk with and to live in communion with, to be conformed to the one whom Scripture proclaims. Jesus Christ, crucified and raised for your salvation. Amen.